I'm Ben, the author of Through All Ten Store. In this podcast, I take us into the Mega Dungeon to interview veteran GMs about the tools and techniques they use to create and run Mega Dungeons. Entire campaigns where the adventuring takes place in a single giant dungeon with hundreds of rooms spread out over many levels. I have so many questions to ask our GMs. Why run a Mega Dungeon campaign? How can you build a single adventure location so that it sustains excitement over more than 100 sessions? Mega Dungeons are huge. How do you even get started prepping them? To answer these questions and many more, I'm going to talk to the people who know best, the GMs with years of actual experience running amazing Mega Dungeon campaigns. It's my great pleasure to have Nick L.S. Whalen on the podcast today. Nick is the author of Deadly Dungeons and Miscreated Creatures. He is the creator of the podcast, which I love, Blogs on Tape. He is also the author of the long-running blog, Papers and Pencils. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today, Nick. Thank you so much for bringing me in, Ben. I have been really enjoying listening to this podcast so far, and I am a little humbled to be in the company of all of these great Mega Dungeon referees. Could you tell us about your experience running Mega Dungeon campaigns? Yeah. I first attempted a Mega Dungeon as, I think, my second ever foray into running OSR-style games, and I had gotten really wrapped up in this idea of, ah, a proper OSR game, though, is a Mega Dungeon. So I tried to run one, and there was a lot of good stuff about it, but it was very difficult to manage, and ultimately I, I retreated from running Mega Dungeons and went back to running campaigns that were of a more familiar style to me. And then in 2020, I made another attempt at it, which I think was significantly more successful. But I do ultimately feel like I haven't cracked the mega dungeon code yet. I just keep learning more about how to do it better next time. See, that's incredibly valuable for us though, because this is supposed to be the podcast where we talk about what we can learn from experience. But could, could I ask you more about each one? So tell me about that first campaign that you ran. What was the elevator pitch for the campaign? And just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, the basic premise was that a long, long time ago, big, powerful wizard man, instead of making a tower for himself to do all of his magic stuff in, made a big sphere, and he put it in the sky in orbit around a planet, and I wanted to call it Dungeon World. But someone else was already using that name for their thing, and one of my players said, it's in orbit around another planet, so it's really more of a dungeon moon. And the history of the place was simply that he'd built it, put it up in the sky, invited a bunch of other wizards to go there and do whatever they wanted on libertarian wizard world. And after 20 years of this had, and because he was the only one who understood how it worked, the only one with any investment in managing it, society had completely collapsed and the players took on the roles of the grandchildren of people who had emigrated to this moon as ditch diggers and lab assistants, and who now found themselves marooned in an incredibly hostile sphere laboratory. That's an amazing premise. (laughs) So let me understand this. The whole sphere, that is the whole moon, was a dungeon through and through 
beneath the surface. Yeah, the initial premise, I backed off this eventually, but the initial premise was that the surface was just incredibly tedious expanses of flagstone as far as the eye could see in every single direction. You could walk along a flagstone street like all the way around the world until you got back to where you started. And that anything of interest was beneath the surface, which was the entire internal space of the sphere was a dungeon. Do you have an idea of roughly how many players and sessions this campaign ran for? I want to say like more than seven, fewer than 15 people played in this game. And the initial run of it went for 21 sessions, thereabouts, which I tend to regard any campaign that lasts fewer than 100 sessions as a failure nowadays. So that's largely why I don't really think of Dungeon Moon as as a success. (laughs) Good. Can we talk about that? So what kind of problems did you find yourself running into? I think I was running into the issue that a lot of referees run into when they're starting out, and I was running into it on a Mega Dungeon scale. I wanted the back end of this adventure to be fully planned. I wanted these rooms to have the kind of descriptions that I saw in adventure modules. Like There was one room at one point, it was a small room that had two pages of description, most of which was like there was a well in the room that had like a secret door in it. And I spent an entire evening planning out this very elaborate room that no one ever found. And I should never have expected anyone to find. And beyond just the text of it, the map of it was immense. I I at one point had to spread it across uh, my entire kitchen floor. And I, I had to stand on top of a chair to get a photograph of the expanse of this map. It was so large that every time the players went anywhere, there was this extended shuffling of papers and scrolling through documents trying to find what they would encounter next. It probably felt worse to me than it did to the players, because I was the one everyone was waiting on, but it was a very anxious game to run for me, and it was a game that left me feeling like I was always behind. Because it never took that long for the players to get somewhere where I would have to say, I'm sorry, I haven't done anything in that direction yet. Because I was trying to develop the dungeon to this level of explicit foreplanning in every single direction, in up, down, left, north, west. It was completely impossible to manage. Prep is supposed to be that thing that makes you feel not anxious. Yes. And it's supposed to be the thing that makes you feel comfortable in your skin, ready to improvise where called for, but having a basis, feeling sort of in command. And so to do a kind of prep where, in fact, you know, the effect is really opposite. I mean, I've, of course, experienced that. I've experienced that. In my Dreamlands game, there's this jungle that hangs from the bottom of the flying island, and it's a four-layer stacked hex map. I mean, in notionally, the hexes are each three-dimensional, but I don't track any of that. It's all abstracted. But what I do have are four hex crawls laid on top of each other. And, you know, I don't have a great way of quickly getting from one map to another so that I can tell you what's below or above a hex. And that does create pulling up documents, scrolling, 
you know, this anxious making sort of futzing, which it like produces a terrible feeling. So could you talk maybe now about what your fixes were for those problems or like how you tried to grapple with them moving forward or over time? Like when I was 12 years old and I had like a, a heart that thought that I could devour the world, I, I, thought of settings as something that had to be immense and all-encompassing. But I have a lot of, of experiences and adventures that happen within my, my city and my town. The scale that you're operating on in an absolute sense really doesn't matter so much so long as the players are consistently encountering choices about where to go, what to do, how to respond to XYZ problem. So I hear what you're saying. One solution is just limit the scale, limit the limit the scope. I mean, that's why in my Dreamlands game, the door opens into a flying island that is roughly the size of Manhattan on its top surface. And I thought that's more than enough for an entire decade-long campaign. I've seen on your blog, though, another um, maybe another approach. Um, could you tell us about your idea of flux space? And, and was that meant to be a kind of solution to some of the endless dungeon problem? Yeah, absolutely it was. It's an idea that came to me actually many years after I ended Dungeon Moon. Flux space was functionally an idea of, hey, so much of the way that we conceive of dungeons is in spaces that are not fun to play in. It's a very classic thing, going back to the very beginning of the hobby, of referees putting mazes in dungeons and players hating it. Because mazes are not actually fun to play in using the tools that we use to do exploration play, even if they're fun to conceive of, to think about. A maze, it's a fantastical space that it's fun to imagine our characters mastering. So I wanted to come up with some way of having these immense spaces that even if they were not necessarily exploration spaces where you would want to track every 10 foot square of movement, that there was still an imaginative space to engage with there. And so would you tell us a little bit about how flux spaces work? Ben, I I wrote it down so that it could leave my mind. I hear you, but enough, <laughs> enough to give us an idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The basic idea is that you've got a, a flux, which is an indefined space. It is not mapped. The referee does not need to understand it in its completeness. The players spend a certain amount of time exploring it, and each time they explore it, they are they're using resources in terms of light and food and maybe other things like ropes if this particular flux is maybe like a, a complicated series of vertical crevices. So they're expending resources, they're taking risks because they might encounter something or experience some kind of danger. And at the end of some amount of time exploring a flux, they will find something. Because even though a flux might be an immense maze of stone corridors, there's going to be a few rooms in them or a few set piece encounters. So at the end of one exploration where they've taken a risk and lost some resources, they will encounter some room or some creature that they'll need to engage with, make decisions about, or overcome a challenge regarding. And then they can explore it more. After they have explored it a sufficient amount, 
the flux is now solved. They have left a trail of breadcrumbs. They have sketched a, a map that allows them to move through this flux to whatever is beyond it much more quickly. And each individual flux might connect to several other fluxes or a level of a dungeon that has 10, 15, 100 rooms. Basically, it's a sort of a, a, a dungeon space that exists between dungeon spaces. It's interesting because we had on an earlier episode, when I had Gus on, he was emphasizing what is a dungeon? A dungeon is you map every space. It doesn't abstract space. And you know you know where everything is in relation to everything else. And you don't ever say, and then you wandered through lightless halls and, you know, and so on and so forth. But I think if you hewed to that understanding, then Dungeon Moon is basically impossible as like a concept for the sort of reasons you were saying. But I think the flux space is really interesting because it's a different way of coming at it. It says, okay, there's that. There's like the space thing. There's the concrete space thing. We'll do that when we get to points of interest, whether those points of interest are big or small, whether they're a room or whether they're like a whole accessible adventuring location that is itself mapped with a bunch of rooms or whatever it is, we'll, we'll do that there. But in the flux, we'll come up with the different kinds of procedures that are meant to abstract from that and allow you to do some of that resource management that's involved in dungeon crawling, to do some of those encounter checks, to have a kind of vibe that fits with it, but to really abstract from that kind of layout question in a way that lets us deal with different scales. Yeah, that's basically what my goal was, to allow the concrete spaces to be broken down into more manageable chunks. Because that is largely what the interest of running a dungeon is, the exploration turn, very methodical movement through a like concretely understood space. But to allow that to be big and to, to allow that space to be very far away from the entrance that leads back to safety and town without needing to necessarily go through a lot of concrete space. Could you tell us a little bit about your second uh, Mega Dungeon campaign? Yeah, Five Years Left was a, was a Mega Dungeon campaign that I started in 2020 after I got a little burned out with On a Red World Alone, which you know, was somewhere up at 130 sessions, and I was, I was losing energy. Five Years Left, the basic setting was that Something terrible had happened to Earth. Uh, I knew what it was, I, and I wanted the players to figure it out. I don't think that they ever got actually very interested in the terrible thing that happened to Earth. But whatever it was, as far as they knew, this little settlement that they were in was the only remnant of humanity left on the planet, a planet that was a dry desert in every direction, and there was only five years' worth of emergency supplies left. Five years from now, humanity will just die out because there's no food, no way to grow food, no water. The town is built on top of an old government facility that is very large and at this point filled with all sorts of strange creatures. So what was like down in the research? What was down in the government facility? What was the vibe of the dungeon? I'll tell you. No one ever discovered this stuff. But the, the government facility was researching basically portal technology, taking two spaces that are not next to one another 
and making them be next to one another through some super science device. And as a result of those experiments going horribly wrong, this government facility was a mishmash of lots of different places. And as it also happened, they had accidentally opened a portal to a incredibly arid planet that had a lower atmospheric pressure than Earth did, and they'd been completely unable to contain it. So that planet had just absorbed all of Earth's moisture. So the government facility, i.e. the dungeon, was full of these different immediate transitions and what had come through them, this kind of mashed space. Exactly, because I didn't want to need to think about making the space make sense. Like, it's important for it to make sense now. It's important for the people who live in the dungeon to have a sensible relationship to the space around them. But I really didn't want it. I just wanted to be able to say, yeah, this room has a bunch of ancient columns in it. And this room has a super science machine. And I don't want to explain that. This is just a bunch of buildings got mixed together. Could you say what had what changed between the two campaigns? What did you do, do differently the second time around, and what was the result of that? I think my keying method is probably the most significant change. As we discussed, Dungeon Moon was methodically drawn-out maps with laboriously detailed rooms and with, with a complex cross-referencing system where I had codes in the, the corners of pages that related to a, an immense 100-page document. With five years left, I randomly generated six maps and printed them out. And the contents of each room was limited to what I could describe physically writing on the map within the borders of that room. Wow. So usually just a handful of words. So you really went from one extreme to the other. Did it work? That worked. It... That worked. Yes. Tell yeah, tell me about it. What uh, was it like? What was it like to run that way as opposed to the other way? Honestly, it's way easier uh, to 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 remember everything about an imaginary space that the players have been to when all you've got is like a couple words of prompt. If a room just says like bait at the far end, pit trap, uh I will be able to remember that the players have been there before. I'll be able to remember how I described that pit trap. I'll be able to remember how they solved it because that all had to go through my mind. And I I just found that I didn't need very extensive notes at all. What I heard you just saying was, you might think that if you had notes like that, you would be in trouble because when people re-entered a space you wouldn't be able to remember the way that you ran it last time, given the brevity of the notes. And you're saying, no, actually, it was sticky in memory because we remember play, because we remember the imaginative investment in the place. We have to envision it. We go through it. So then we we hold it with us. I get that. But what I was just thinking was, but how did it change like the first time that you ran it? Not the memory, but did, did you find it freeing? to run a dungeon that way? Were the quality of your descriptions better or worse? What what emerged an experience from running from those kinds of incredibly terse notes? So in part, I had at this point been running between one and two D&D games a week for over a decade. So I have a, a, a reservoir of mental tools for 
how I describe things. And when I saw Pit Trap, it was second nature to me to, you know, take and say, okay, it's a pit trap. What kind of clues need to be here to let people know that, that that's something that's in the room, but also are vague enough that the players still might fall into it. I found it very freeing, but I was drawing on a lot of experience in doing it. No, that's a good point that what notes you need depends on what's going on with you. That is, you never needed probably those hyper-anxious first GMing mega notes you made. Yeah, Those don't help anyone. But how little you can get away with might depend on how comfortable you are with different kinds of play. And so you one draws on wellsprings of experience. Also, like another thing that I know is like that from my own experience is that when you really have invested a lot of time imagining a certain place, improvisation is often easy because you know what makes sense. You're like, oh, there's this secret society and they this is totally the kind of thing those bastards would be all up in. And so then maybe the, so all of a sudden the NPCs like could be a member of a secret society or whatever. So for you at that, what you're saying, it's like for you at that time, it worked. It was very yes. free. I don't need to hear more if I write down pit trap. It doesn't particularly help me. It wouldn't hurt me, but it doesn't help me to have five lines about a pit trap. Yeah. I don't need that now. So let it go. Exactly. I definitely focused more on the details and terms that I felt confident would put me in a very specific mental place. Because you are writing notes for yourself. It's very easy whenever you're writing to start thinking about other people understanding it. But referee notes are only for you. (laughs) That's an important point. That's connected to the first thing you were saying that you saw like published modules and you were like, I need to make this like that. Because one thing about a published module is that it's for other people who you don't know. But if you're making your own notes, that's really a different beast. So there the question is what works for you? Although five years remaining was more successful. You suggested that there was something that you found unsatisfying about it as well. Could you talk about what problems you ran into when you returned basically a decade later as a more seasoned GM? Yeah, the game was fun. I, I don't want to say that it wasn't, but I regard it as a failure because... I was often left at the end of a session feeling unsatisfied, like I had not achieved my goals, like I hadn't necessarily had a lot of fun. Mm. And I think ultimately that's because I was insufficiently procedure-pilled. Say more about that. Yes. I, I did not have an appropriate appreciation yet for how vital things like encumbrance and light tracking and movement speed are for running a mega dungeon. How do you think that affected play? It starts to feel like the dangers of the dungeon don't have heft, don't have a real impact on play when the players don't have to think about their movement rate, don't have to think about how much they can carry. It's very easy for the players to reach a point 
where they have hit their limits for the amount of risk that they're willing to take, they're low on hit points they or whatever, and simply turn around and leave. And my inconsistency with you know, tracking how fast they can go, making sure that encounters are getting rolled and they spend time doing things, and just general sloppiness with how the dungeon responded to them made the game feel unsatisfying for me. I think they had a lot of fun. I didn't feel like the dungeon was responding to them. I felt like they were able to do whatever they wanted to the dungeon, and I wasn't participating. (laughs) Can I amplify this? Because I do think sometimes people think something that's not true, which is they think that all that matters is how much fun the players have. And that the GM ought to feel that their experience, how, how could it differ? Like, I could understand how a GM could have fun while the players weren't, if they were like out of step with what was going on. But if they're cued in, how could it be that the players have a good time and the experience is not satisfying for the GM? But of course that happens. And I really feel like it happens to me, it has happened to me in the same kind of way you're saying, namely where you feel like you were trying to do something and you just didn't succeed at doing it. One good example of that for me is when I'm not able to think well enough on my feet, for example, to run an opposition where it's clear that they do have resources and abilities It ends up being, maybe the players don't see it as a cakewalk because there are challenges, but like things definitely didn't go down the way they should have gone down, not because you decided in advance, but just because they're up against a, a really smart person who has all these abilities and you just forget about them or don't, don't use them, or you don't follow your own procedure. You didn't have a way of doing it. You didn't make notes on what people would do. So you couldn't in the moment think appropriate ways and then the players walk away from it feeling like we succeeded and it was great and they feel really great and like the taste in your mouth is like ashes because you're like i love that you succeeded i always love it when you succeed that's not the problem but the problem is that i didn't do the thing like i wanted to do the thing i didn't do the thing and sometimes not having like ways of doing a thing like not having ways of making certain things matter that you like start out fussing about and paying attention to, but then it just falls away. I do think that's one place where it can feel really unsatisfying. And then I thought it was really interesting what you said, like you felt in a way it meant that the world wasn't reacting properly to them. And so that was unsatisfying to you. It often does end up feeling when you end up in that mode, like you are a performing improviser. I'm coming up with interesting things for these NPCs to say and like interesting descriptions for this environment. And that takes a certain amount of cognitive load. And I'm not terrible at it. People keep showing up to my games, but that's not necessarily a feeling that I'm pursuing. I want to feel like I have represented a world that is coherent in itself and that is a... a legitimate challenge to the players and not merely something that makes them feel that they've overcome a challenge. I know. See, some people don't get that. 
I they're they, that's this thing. They're like it's just what the players experience. If they couldn't tell, I, this drives me crazy when people say this. When they say they say, well, the but the players can't tell the difference between X and Y. And first of all, the first thing is often they can. Yeah. Let's be honest, they're grown ups. Often they can, but even when they can. But you're a human being. It's not only the players. It's also you and some things they don't know. And so your experience is different. And your experience can be bad even if they can't tell that it's bad because you want a certain thing from the game and you're not getting it. And so I, I do think like this, especially if you're invested in what you're saying, namely this thing that I'm like probably inappropriately obsessed with in my gaming, I do think it... It's, but it just matters so much to me. But this thing where I want to set up a situation and have no idea what's going to happen. And you're right. I want it to be like challenging in various ways that are telegraphed so that it can be like a strategic place and so that people can have the thrills and accomplishments of overcoming challenges and so on. But I really do want it to have a sort of existence apart from me that lets that be real. And that does sometimes outstrip what the players know and what the players are experiencing. And it has to do with what I know and what I'm experiencing. And I think the thing you're pointing out that's really important is that procedures can really help with that because they can say, no, there's a certain way this works. It's not, oh, owing to the shortage of my cognitive load or what like feels good in a moment, I say this rather than that. Of course, that also happens. Obviously, we're improvising all the time. There's no, no thought that we could ever do away with improvising or something. But nonetheless, for certain core things that are central to the kind of dungeon experience, you take it seriously. You're like, no, there's a way this works. Yeah. And hopefully you eventually get to a place where the players are used to you enforcing the procedures, that the procedures are how they think about the game. And then that cognitive load of understanding that an event die is rolled every turn isn't entirely on the referee anymore. You have a group of people, they've all said what they want to do for this turn, and then everyone's expecting for the event die to get rolled. And I think also this, like, what we don't brush off or what we don't hand wave away, that's going to be different for different games. Sometimes it's really procedure-based, and that that's really useful. But another thing, I was just reflecting on this the other day, that the in the Mega Dungeon game I play in, the GM, Nick, who appeared on episode two, they never hand wave getting back into the dungeon. And the reason they never hand wave it, never, is that they insist on telling us how things have changed. And that takes getting used to. Like for me, at first I was like, there's a kind of impatience. You're like, no, but we've been here before. Hand wave this. But no, it's just that this is not the game where we hand wave that thing. And there's a reason for it. Like the reason is in this particular case, given their style and how they're doing it, this is the key to the place coming alive. Just slow slow down, get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> once you accommodate yourself to it and once you internalize that, then it opens up all these possibilities like strategic reasoning about resources or in this case, 
no, no, this is really important. Like what's going on in the place? That's like a big part of the game for us. So we're just going to slow it down and we're just going to let that be what it is. Like a lot of these things are things we don't have like good language for talking about because they're subtle. They're like subtle things about like how we do things with other people. The topic of what we let go, what we let slide and what we don't let slide is an important one for like what a game actually feels like in play. Yeah. I've been personally trying to cultivate a kind of middle ground between hand-waving and not, where in certain situations, I, I will make assumptions about what the party wants to do, and I will proceed as if we've had an exchange where I say, what do you want to do? And they say, we keep walking to the place where we said we were going. Because you, you, you get very used to the player saying, I want to go five rooms this way, and then you describe the first room, and you stop, and you wait for them to say something. And what I'm trying to do to smooth off some of the rough edges is to describe that room and then say, you continue going to the next room. And then I describe right. that room. And I, I'll leave pauses in my speech to allow the players to interrupt if there's something that they want to engage with. But I yeah. largely try to keep the game moving so long as everyone seems to be on board. Yeah, I, I do think that's an important point. A teaching analogy to that is students hate fishing questions, questions where you're essentially asking them to regurgitate some information from a text, but not really think. And they just, if you ask those questions, nobody will answer. And I do find something with a kind of echo of that in games, and it is pathological, and I experience it myself, where you keep going back to the fundamental game loop, which is you describe something and then say, what do you want to do? Yeah. But it's totally obvious what the players want to do. And it takes this form that's pathological where you're like, so do you want to keep going? And they're like, yes, we want to keep going. <laughs> and no one knows who's supposed to answer that question. Right. It's an ideal that I feel I am endeavoring towards, not something that I feel I'm actually good at yet. But uh, when I'm getting it, when I'm doing it, I, I feel my game running smoother. I feel like I am much closer to representing the world as a concrete space by forcing those area descriptions and those procedures to take place. But I am more quickly getting the players to where they want to be by making assumptions. There's also an element of it that's read the room because a certain amount of it is just being able to tell what's going on with the players because they'll appreciate it if you don't make them give answers that are completely obvious and that do nothing. But what you have to be sensitive to are all the spots where they are choice points and you don't know what they're going to do. And you were already talking about how to build some of that in, namely it has to do with the pacing of your narration, that you're not rushing through everything. You're rushing through maybe the parts that need to be rushed through. But when you're describing something and there is the possibility of acting, you're pausing. You're seeing what's going on with them. You're letting them have a space to say something. This stuff is, all these things are so subtle. There, there is a yeah. lot of little ways about the way you speak and the specific ways that you phrase things that can have such a profound impact on the effectiveness of your refereeing, uh, which is very frustrating to me as someone with terribly untreated ADHD who speaks in a chaotic tumble of words where I, I frequently get lost myself. Yeah. 
I hear you. The struggle is real. Yeah. GMing, GMing is hard. Like, it's so hard. Why do we do this to ourselves? The, right. Right. Why do we do this? It's like self-inflicted wounds. Okay. Could I ask you about just one last thing? Could you tell us, I really love how you structure your encounter tables. Could you talk about how your encounter tables work? Absolutely. So I typically use two dice. I often when I've written about it, I'll say 2d6, and I'll use 2d6 for large regions that the players are likely to spend a great deal of time in. For smaller regions, I might use 2d4. Using two dice creates a bell curve. Very basic uh, DMing stuff. So you have really common stuff in your middle numbers, and there I will use the major factions of an area will be represented there. So you'll frequently encounter the specific tribe of slime people who inhabit this region of the dungeon. At the extreme ends, you'll have your much stranger things. Always, for me, at one end will be a dragon, because Dungeons & Dragons has a terrible dearth of dragon encounters in it. And at the other end, usually a wizard, because I really like wizards. I love that every encounter table has both a dragon and a wizard on it. But there's another thing I really love that you do also, which you didn't mention just now. Isn't there a spot you usually hold back for recurring characters? Yeah, I actually, depending on how big an area is, I will often have a very regimented set of these two numbers are for this thing, and these three numbers are for that thing. If I'm using 2d6, then a seven will be recurring characters. Um, what what is a recurring character? It's an NPC that the players have a, a positive or neutral relationship with. Often a character who's like kind of silly. They exist to present a different kind of encounter for the players. Like they'll be like, oh, hey, since the last time I saw you, I have a new problem. Here's something I need help with. Or, hey, that thing you helped me with last time, here's an unintended knock-on effect that I'm like now struggling with. Or just, hey, I need some money. Can I get a loan? I do it to try to add history to the game, to connect the players to what they've done before, which to me is a really important aspect of a game, which is it's why I generally regard a game that lasts fewer than 100 sessions as, as a failure, because... My goal is often to to build that kind of rich history. I recently myself was just reminded about this in my face-to-face game. My players are in the city that's on top of this flying island. They're in Zion, the city. And I was just like, oh my God, of course the encounter table needs to have recurring characters in it that is that you bump into someone you know in the city there's a question how you make it interesting which you were alluding to like they need to be in some kind of distress or going about some task that will be interesting for the players to bump into or if there's someone who are angry at them for some reason of course that's an interesting situation but i do think building into the encounter table seeing people in an unexpected place who you know is like a really beautiful way of bringing the past into the present and also deepening their relationship whether it's positive or negative or whatever it might be to the people in question i think one of my favorites that i used recently was i took a character that the the players were quite fond of and their entry on the recurring characters table was that they are encountered imprisoned by whatever the local faction is 
in whatever area the players are in when this is rolled. Then it's rolled, and I then have to come up with on the spot, okay, this area is controlled by the like giant Celtic mutant people. Why would they have this person imprisoned? How do they have this person imprisoned? And what would be an acceptable thing for the players to do to get this person released? Um, yeah, that's wonderful. I can see that's and that's an adventure starter right there anyway, just right all by itself. I think this is probably a good place to wrap up the conversation. Nick, if people wanted to find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, For role-playing game stuff, absolutely to the blog, uh, paperspencils.com. I have a Kickstarter that is just about to launch. It's for a book called Sanctimonious Slimes versus Expired Epicures. It's about some oozy boys who are very religious and do not get along with their undead neighbors who are out-and-out obscene hedonists. And they all live together in a Medusa's house, and her hair barely tolerates the situation. So the Kickstarter is going to drop in late October. It was a, a real pleasure talking to you, Nick. Thank you very much for having me on, Ben. This was a real treat.